I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is John Levitsky, an M&A and private equity partner at Debo Boys in Plimpton. John, thanks so much for joining us. But David, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First, you and your background, you clerked on the Supreme Court and then worked for the State Department for about three years before moving to private practice. And so we'll talk about that transition and then a little bit about your practice, which balances both private equity and M&A. So with that, tell us about your path to becoming an M&A leader. Sure, David. Happy to do it. I had a somewhat unusual path. I started out life thinking I wanted to be a litigator. I took all of the litigator classes that one can take in law school. I clerked for a couple of years in the federal courts, as you mentioned, and had a sort of a late realization that what I really wanted to do was to be a transactional lawyer. And that happened while I was working at the State Department, which is something I did after I left my clerkships. And in the course of that, I found myself involved in diplomatic negotiations and realized that that was something that was, for me anyway, more exciting than litigation and was the direction in which I wanted to take my career. Talk a little bit about just what it's like to clerk on the Supreme Court. Sure, happy to do it. And and to be honest, that experience is very much an individual experience that ties to who you work for. You clerk really more for your individual justice than for the court as a whole. And I had the great honor to clerk for Justice Stevens, who was an extraordinary man, the kind of person who you'd probably want to work for whatever his job was. He could have been running a gas station. You would have been happy to work for Justice Stevens. He was a man of extraordinary brilliance, but also of modesty and integrity. He had a condo that he would retreat to in Fort Lauderdale when the court wasn't in session. And when he was out there and people asked him what he did, he would tell them that he was a lawyer from Chicago, which was true. He was both a lawyer and he was from Chicago, but it obviously didn't tell the whole story. It does, however, tell you a lot about who he was. He didn't think that his station in life ought to dictate how other people responded to him. And it was really important to him that everybody that crossed his path felt treated with dignity and respect, both litigants and people in ordinary life and his professional circumstances. And those are lessons that are probably some of the most important that I took away from my time with him. And how did you transition from there to the State Department? And did you consider it all appellate advocacy as a practice? You know, I thought about it a little bit, and it may be that that would have been a direction I went in if I had become a litigator. But Leaving the court, which is, you know, one of these extraordinary jobs where you work on issues of public moment. I mean, you know, without talking about particular cases I worked on, I mean, and that term the court had in front of it, the Clinton versus Jones dispute, which was the case in which the Supreme Court held that the president wasn't immune from civil process while he was in office. That case, obviously, in recent years wound up having more salience than I think anybody could have expected in ways that probably demonstrated the wisdom of the court's choices there. And a number of other really important decisions that year, an early case involving gun control, the Brady Act case, a case involving the constitutionality of limitations on people's right to have assisted suicide available to them in certain circumstances of terminal illness. Lots of important issues. And sort of coming out of that, you know, as a young lawyer, you naturally want to have a little bit more of an opportunity at public service. And I saw a chance to do that and wound up at the State Department. And it was there that I made this transition, as we talked about, to negotiation. 
And talk about the kind of negotiation you did in that role. Well, sort of somewhat improbably, I had this job working for Secretary of State Albright on her policy planning staff. And through a series of strange coincidences, there was a need for a young lawyer who was willing and able to be on the ground in Kosovo during the conflict there and negotiate with the parties. And so I got sent to Pristina as basically the deal lawyer on the Kosovo peace process, supporting the senior diplomats who were leading that negotiation. And what did you do in that role and what lessons did you take there? Well, I was really a kid with a laptop at some level, parachuted in there to support, as I said, the leaders of the negotiation who were career diplomats. I had with me as my model, as deal lawyers were always looking for sort of a model agreement we could work from, the Dayton Peace Accords, which were the peace agreement from the Bosnia conflict that had happened a few years earlier. And I also had borrowed from the Supreme Court librarians the court's copy of the Yugoslav Constitution, which the parties were all very focused on because this was essentially an arrangement that would have to work within those expectations. So that was the job. I was working from a term sheet trying to build out a peace agreement that ultimately became quite developed. And when one side was able to agree to it and the other was not, was the basis for NATO's air war in Kosovo in the late 90s. So that was what the role was. What did I learn from it? I mean, all kinds of things, obviously. I learned a lot from the diplomats of the State Department about how negotiation works. And as I said, those are lessons that I continue to use to this day. I learned a lot about, from a strategic point of view, how you think about the other side's decision process. How are they deciding questions? Who are the right interlocutors to talk to about which kinds of issues? When's the right moment to elevate those issues as opposed to sort of sitting and waiting for them to be resolved? I learned a lot about the way deadlines and time pressure affect a negotiation. You know, one of the things that's funny to me, David, that I continue to see to this day is the extent to which people as humans just have trouble making the hardest decisions in a negotiation unless it's at the 11th hour. They're a little sleep deprived. You know, often it's at 2 a.m. This just seems to be something about human psychology that calls for that. And so understanding when the moment for that will happen and how to pace a negotiation so that the most critical issues are teed up properly for resolution when the parties are ready to resolve them is something that I learned a lot about. I also learned about the importance of finding opportunities to solve the other side's problems. You know, you really can't prevail in a negotiation on behalf of a client if the other person feels like you're not listening. And so listening hard and, and solving other people's problems was an important part of it. And I also learned something about the theater of negotiation. We don't do it too often. No one does because it's obviously a pretty dramatic moment. But there are times in a negotiation when you need to go pencils down and signal to the other side very firmly that the deal can't proceed unless an issue that's extremely important to your client is resolved in a manner that's acceptable to them. And how to do that in a way that's both credible, but also leaves open lines of communication is something that I learned a lot about as well. It was a fascinating job. And then how did you transition to private practice in New York? And why did you decide to take that route as opposed to a litigation practice or as opposed to staying in public service in some form? Well, I had always known that I wanted to make a private sector transition. And at the end of the Clinton administration, that that was the appropriate time to do it. I had thought, though, that I would be some kind of litigator. And as I said, coming out of this experience where I was negotiating for a living and learning from these extraordinary 
American diplomats, I realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do after all, that what I wanted to do was keep engaging in this business of negotiation. And that meant becoming some kind of transactional lawyer. I didn't, I have to admit, David, know much about what that would really entail. I tried from the outside to learn as much as I could. Some of that came from reading The Daily Deal, to be honest. But I went to the New York law firms looking for an opportunity to find a professional home. I knew that I was likely to want to be a law firm partner. And so I was looking for someplace where the partners were willing to invest in me. I I realized that I was a somewhat odd case and that it was going to take a lot of work and training to teach me how to, to do this trade, this craft. And I also wanted to go someplace where, you know, the nature of the partnership was attractive to me, that it was the kind of place where I could see spending a career. And that was why I chose Devonmost. And discuss that transition. I mean, in some ways, you came to legal practice with negotiating skills that would have been those of a senior associate or junior partner, but other pieces of the practice you wouldn't have been steeped in. No, it's really true. There was just so much that I didn't know, even more, frankly, that I had realized coming in the door. And I'm just so grateful, really, to this day for the people who took the time to mentor me, you know, Paul Bird and Jeff Rosen and our retired partner, Francie Blasberg in particular, but really many others spent so much time with me, frankly, at the expense of their own sanity, I think at times, teaching me how to do this job. And what did I have to learn? As I said, almost everything. I mean, first of all, I had to learn how these deal documents work and what they do. I had to learn the business context, which is so important because you really can't negotiate a business transaction for a client unless you understand what they care about and why. The other thing that I really had to learn was how to lead and manage a team and how to work with professional colleagues in large groups in ways that are orderly and that respect the dignity of every member of the team and value all of their contributions. And those are all skills that we value very much at Demovoys, and I'd come to the right place to learn them. Was there a specific deal where you realized you had a command or could see yourself getting to the point where you had a command of those various skills, or was it a more gradual process? You know, I think, David, it it was inevitably a a more gradual process. But I will say that the first few years there, there were moments when I wondered whether I'd bitten off more than I could chew. This is, you know, it was a a lot of heavy lifting to master all the various pieces to a point at which I could function in the way that the firm wanted me to and that I aspired to. And how has that influenced how you train the associates you work with? That's a a wonderful question, David. I mean, I think maybe because that transition was so particularly challenging for me, since I was really thrown in at the deep end of the pool as a kind of a mid-level associate without the background that ordinarily our young associates would have coming up through our system. I think I'm particularly sensitive to the foreignness of our world as folks are trying to figure it out. One of the funny things about particularly being a transactional lawyer is that law students don't really learn a great deal in law school that's directly applicable to what we do. They learn important skills about the law and how to think about legal problem. But you know, the reality is that both the background of the law faculty, who mostly, if they did practice law, were litigators, and the nature of the law teaching process, which is this kind of case law study, uh, those things leave law students in a situation in which they come in 
not naturally prepared to think about how to negotiate, how to engage in a technical drafting exercise of a contract. It's also a rather solitary pursuit in a lot of ways. And so people don't naturally come in with the skills they need to lead and manage teams effectively and to be a part of a team and an effective participant in a team and to understand how to do that well. So I come at this really excited about the opportunity to help people learn to surmount those challenges. It's one of the great joys of the practice, frankly. And I think DevOvoice does a lot of things that are designed institutionally to help people achieve those goals. And we do those things in part because we're an old-fashioned partnership. Almost all of our partners come up through the ranks. I'm now 22 years at DevOvoice this spring, which is kind of amazing to me. And we need to train our lawyers to be broad-gauged attorneys who can practice and think about a whole wide variety of issues with the full skill set necessary to become a partner from the ground up because our partners, that's where they come from. We don't have a massive lateral hiring program where we're constantly bringing in outside talent. We do that on a selective basis when we have particular needs, but it's not the way we build our practice. And so talk about the training you and your firm provide from the time people are even summer associates. Well, and it's nice of you to start with the summer associate piece. One of my favorite things actually is working with summer associates. We have this program that we do for the summers that I've been leading for a bunch of years with a colleague called Deals and Donuts. And it's just such a great program because we start from the assumption that the associates don't really know anything, as I said, about what it is the transactional lawyers do. And so we try to have these little seminars where without PowerPoint slides, we bring the whole team in that worked on a particular deal from lots of different areas, M&A deals, deals in the restructuring area, financings, capital markets, deals, everything really. But we'll bring in the whole team and we'll talk to a group of associates who are interested and we'll try to keep those groups reasonably small about what makes our practice fun. So rather than focusing in on the sort of the narrow, super granular technical elements that we might be interested in as deal lawyers, we take it from the perspective of somebody who doesn't know anything at all about deal work. And I really enjoy that. And we did one last summer, for example, on the Warner Media deal, which was a big, complicated M&A deal that a team of us worked on, $130 billion, you know, the largest M&A deal that was done in that year. And we brought the whole team in. Jeff Rosen, our most senior M&A partner, and Sue Meng, another highly capable M&A partner, and I led that deal. And the three of us with our full associate team got in a room and talked to people about the deal, but also about our practice and what we enjoy about it. And the thing that's so great about that, David, is the moment when you see some law students in the room who clearly were on the fence about whether transactional work was going to be of interest to them, maybe didn't know what was involved, you see a little light bulb go off. And that's a really gratifying moment. Tell us a little bit about that transaction, what you found particularly interesting about it. Well, it was a wonderful opportunity to work with a tremendous client team. And one of the things I really love about our practice is how closely we work with our clients. And Bruce Campbell, the lead business person on the deal, and Saval Sims, the general counsel, are sort of dear friends and extraordinary people to work with. On the DevOvoice side, we also had an extraordinary team. And you know, as I mentioned, we're kind of one of the last of the old-fashioned partnerships. And so Jeff and Sue and I had worked together for years. Jeff trained me. Jeff and I together had been involved in helping recruit and train Sue over the years. 
we had with us a series of specialists in various technical areas who we'd all worked with for many, many years because of the nature of our firm. And given the complexity and the pace of that transaction, it was the kind of deal that allowed us as a firm to sort of show what we're best at, which is bringing this, you know, kind of community of people who have a connectivity that I think is uncommon at this point among the lawyers at law firms so that we could all work seamlessly together in almost a, a mind meld kind of way. And it was quite an extraordinary experience. You do both private equity work and M&A. Talk about that, the balance in your practice. Happy to. It's something that I really enjoy. It's not actually, I think, funnily enough, that unique among Devovoy's M&A partners, but it is relatively uncommon increasingly in the market generally. Our view is that in order to be a successful and top-of-market transactional lawyer, you really need a broad skill set. And just to use the Warner Media transaction as an example, that deal was done as what's called a reverse Morse trust. And transactions of that kind combine the things that you do in private M&A deals, corporate carve-out technology, net debt and working capital adjustment technology, all of those elements are there. And it combines that with public M&A because it is also a merger between two public companies and involves all the capital markets and Delaware law issues that one needs to worry about in that context. So you can't really do, in our view, the most complicated, most interesting transactions unless you're a little bit ambidextrous. And we train our lawyers to be that way. You mentioned managing large teams. How do you go about acquiring that skill? Putting a team together for you know, a big complicated deal involves just an enormous number of people with all kinds of very specialized expertise. And everyone has to bring together their part in order to make one of these deals work. So a typical deal team is going to involve one or more M&A partners, at least a couple of associates, depending upon size and complexity, maybe more than that. Experts in intellectual property, employee benefits, maybe in antitrust, maybe in capital markets. and. The point is that these are deal teams that involve wide-ranging expertise. And one of the things that I love about being an M&A lawyer is that you're sort of like the general contractor. That is to say, you're not the electrician, you're not the plumber, you're not the structural engineer, but you have to know enough about everybody's little part of the deal in order to bring the whole thing together and get the project to come in on time. And there are times when there's tension between the needs of one area of specialization or work stream and the needs of another or business imperatives and judgment calls need to be made as to how you weigh those things. And someone has to figure that stuff out and then help advise the client along with our experts about what to do. And that's the job of the M&A lawyer and one of the things that makes it so interesting and constantly changing. And so as a firm, how do you go about teaching those management skills to not just M&A partners, but you know, the partners in other specialties who will need them to some extent as well. Well, we actually have a pretty rigorous formal training program for our associates that we've really invested a lot of time thinking about, which starts as they come in the door with what we call our business education program. We understand that our associates come from law school really, by and large, not knowing a great deal about the business world. There are people who come to us who had careers as investment bankers or accountants and the like. But by and large, people don't know a great deal about the business world. So we start by giving them a little mini MBA. And we do that before we unleash them on our clients. Then once they're here, 
we've got a series of formal training programs that we do as folks become more senior. We have a skills matrix that we use to track people's professional development and knowledge across various skills, which range from hard intellectual skills about how contract drafting works and how the law works in certain areas and into softer, but still incredibly important skills like team management and negotiation. But the most important part of it really happens elbow to elbow with the partners and the senior associates working with the younger lawyers, teaching them this trade, this craft. And as I said, because of the structure of our firm and the way we work, we're really, I think, very invested in teaching people that set of skills. So each partner takes that on. And we encourage our lawyers all the way up the chain to be doing that with the people they're working with most directly. And to be honest, it's one of the most gratifying parts of the job. And then finally, tell us a little about what you do outside of work. Well, like all of us, I've got my hobbies. I really like to cook. And I spend a lot of time doing that with my daughters. My wife and I have two daughters. They're 16 and 18 years old. And and as they grew up, we spent an enormous amount of time on the weekends in the kitchen with them. To some extent, I started to feel at one point that I'd created a monster because my now 18-year-old got really deeply down the rabbit hole of making these French cookies called macarons, which are sort of meringues with a filling. And they're, they're super fiddly to make. You can't really learn how to do them unless you've made a lot of macarons. So there was a period of time when our house was just like, we had too many. Let's just say that. We had a lot of them. We also have a, a scrappy old sailboat that I bought off Craigslist that dates to the, the first year of the Reagan administration, a, a, a 1980 Cape Dory 25. And I really enjoy going out on that boat with my family. It's you know both the cooking and the sailing share something. And that is that you can't really do either one unless you give it your full focus and attention. And one of the things about the job of being a lawyer is that you're so focused on your client's problems as you need to be that it's a little hard to turn your brain off and stop thinking about it. And so there's something joyful for me about having these hobbies that require your full focus and attention. It gives you a little bit of a break, and it's also a a nice time to connect and be with your family. So those are the things that I do when I'm not working. John, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure, David. Thank you for this. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus.